The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Well, it's my privilege to introduce uh, Ted Powers to you this evening. Um, Ted Powers is going to be our speaker for the conference, and he is the Mission to North America Church Planning Coordinator, which is a mouthful. In a short way, I just say he helps plant churches throughout the United States. How's that sound? And put people in the right place. So um, I'm very grateful for you, Ted. And I know Dan is too, Dan Jackson. Uh, A lot of the reason that Dan Jackson and myself are here in Wisconsin, why we planted a church here in Wisconsin, is a lot of your leading and a lot of your influence. Um, So we're thankful for you um, and uh, your leadership and uh, the great news that we've seen of two churches being planted uh, in the past few years in Wisconsin, which is great. Ted um, also... uh, uh, is an uh, ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church in America. He has pastored in Virginia and also planted a church in Chicago. Uh, he is married to Anne, who is uh, the organizer of his life and also uh, a lot of the conferences. Uh, a lot of her work is under the surface, but it is amazing the work that she does in putting things together. So we appreciate her as church planters. And they have one daughter, Elizabeth, who has just started her first year of college and um, also, Ted is a Michigan grad and roots for Big Blue, and he's a Chicago guy, so he's a Bears fan, too. I know some of you might be excited about that. Most of us are probably not, but we're going to give him grace. Okay. Seriously, despite uh, those two marks against you, Ted, uh, we see that you have a heart for Wisconsin, uh, that you have a desire to see churches flourish in this state, and that has been seen in the time you've spent here coming here for this retreat and the time you spent with church planters here. So we're thankful for you and your work and uh, through the domination and through church planting and through the churches here in Wisconsin. And we're glad to have you uh, this evening. So without ado, Ted Powers, everyone. (sighs) From Chicago, that's right. Home of the 1908 world champion Chicago (laughs) Cubs. How can I say? It's not like we're Green Bay or anything. It is great to be with you guys. It's been exciting to track with you over the years from a distance, even though I've not met most of you, uh, to pray for the churches here, to pray for this state, to see God raise up laborers for the harvest, such as uh, Dan and Dan, to know that there are other uh, men who are sort of in the pipeline uh, on their way to start new works, and just excited to see that um, uh, in this in this state, and praying that God will continue to move. My wife and I have been involved in church planting now uh, with the denomination for almost 12 years, um, and it's really exciting to see some of the things that God is doing. I mean, we're seeing over 50 new churches started every year. Um, in the PCA in a variety of different contexts uh, around North America. So just having that vantage point to see what God is doing to build his church is really quite exciting uh, for me. And so, yes, Ann and I do work together. We've been involved in this church planting thing. Uh, I know our denominational offices are in Atlanta. I'm supposed to be there. Uh, But when we went down there um, to look at housing and this sort of thing, we just said, you know, we just can't do this. Um, I can't bear the idea of living in the South. So uh, we, they agreed to let us live in Chicago, uh, where we had a lot of irons in the fire, have lived there for now some 28 uh, years or so, 
And so my wife works upstairs in her office, and I work downstairs in my office, and we text and email each other all the time. <laughs> so it seems to work out well for us. We, we talk about the fact as long as we keep our relationship on social media, we're going to be in great shape uh, for, the, for, the, for the long haul uh, there. So I've been, like I said, I've been involved in this work for, for a long time, but sometimes when I look back on the path, it, it surprises me because... I was not a person who grew up very um, enthusiastic, you might say, about the church. Uh, I was brought up in the church uh, by parents who who took us because that was the thing to do. It was a very nominal, superficial, uh, formal uh, church existence. And so as I grew up, I found church, to be honest with you, one of the most boring and irrelevant experiences of my life. And I just did not have a place for it uh, with what I wanted to do, where I wanted to go, uh, things I wanted to accomplish. I tended to be a jock. I played football, baseball, went off to the University of Arizona to play uh, baseball, got involved further along the path there, thought that was going to be the career. And I just didn't see a need for Jesus. Um, Didn't see any relevance or meaning for the church. When my parents had given me a chance to stop going, I took them up fully on the opportunity, and it stopped going for, for years uh, there. I just it, it seemed to me that whatever God, Christianity, and the church was all about, it was just getting in the way uh, of whatever it is that I wanted to do uh, with my life. Um, it, but as I moved on in life, I really began to sense more and more of this question, despite things that were happening that were really good, is this all there is? Certainly there's got to be more to life than, than this. Um, but I didn't know what, uh, and a growing sense of emptiness and a sense of not knowing really who I was, why I was here, where I was going, uh, and this sort of thing took hold. So it, it, God brought into my life at that point, this girl I started to date and it turned out she was a Christian. Um, and I didn't hold that against her, uh, cause she's, she's pretty and you know, well, you make a lot of compensations and situations <laughs> like that. So... <laughs> I did, and that was one of them uh, there. And But one of the things she asked me to do was to go to church with her every now and then, and that was like, whoa, we're pushing the limits here. But okay. And then she asked me to start reading the Bible. Once I, you know, I was in college and this sort of thing, she was back in Michigan. It's like, okay, well, I'll tell her I am. But I never did. And she kept saying, are, are you reading your Bible? What are you learning there? I'm, well, I'm learning about God. And pretty pretty soon it was very obvious I was lying through my teeth and this sort of thing. So that relationship didn't go anywhere. But that all of a sudden as I began to think, you know, maybe I don't listen to this. And I began to read the Bible. And for whatever reason, it started to make sense to me. Up until now, it was almost gibberish to me. But now certain things started to jump off the pages at me. And I began to see things about a God who had created me and loved me and had destined me ultimately for himself. And even though I didn't know it at the time, I think this quote by this guy named Augustine, um, Augustine began to really hit home to me the sense of our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. That I began to realize, not knowing that quote, but that was the sense of what was happening. And I began to realize that what God had done in his son, Jesus, sending him to die on the cross to make a relationship with him possible, sins being forgiven, that sort of thing. And so one day, just this irrepressible sense that God loved me was calling me to himself, I just dropped to my knees, asked Christ to come into my life, forgive my sins, and do whatever he does from that point on. And that's when I began to see that my life changed dramatically. I think I can honestly say it has been transformed by the power of the gospel. 
And there's just been a profound sense since that time. Lots of ups and downs, lots of struggles. It's not been an easy path all the way across the board. But, boy, just a profound sense of peace and joy in my life that I never had before. A sense of identity, a feeling like I now know who I am and where I'm coming from and where I'm going and why I'm here and all that kind of stuff. Uh, a, a sense of security. This morbid fear of dying that I used to have was no longer there. Um, I was beginning to see deep and meaningful relationships forming in my life. My life was changing from the inside out. And I just remember guys from the, the ball team that I was playing on. Um, I was playing for this team um, during the summer for the Atlanta Braves and then playing during the year with uh, Arizona. And uh, guys just started to come up and ask, okay, what's going on? You're like really different, and this is scaring me, you know, kind of thing. And so we start to talk, and we start a Bible study, and then all these guys in the baseball team, the football team, this they come to Christ, and we start this Fellowship of Christian Athletes thing, and it just kind of goes from there. And I begin to see these lives transformed by the gospel over and over again. And so the things I'm hoping to share with you over these next, you know, few hours are really not just something I'm just trying to put together to give you good information. I, I'm, I'm really kind of coming at this more from a deeply personal point of view. I'm kind of sharing with you some texts and some things that have really made a profound impact in my life and I think might have a, a, the opportunity to do that for you as well. And one of them is one of the very first Bible texts I remember reading and understanding to some degree. And it's, it's continued to grow on me over the course of the years. And it was one of the first places I tried reading because that's where somebody said, you should try to read here. So I did. And so Mark chapter 1 and verses 40 through 45. And I caught a glimpse of it years and years ago. It's come more and more than one of those passages that has been a formative, significant influence in shaping my life and my ministry. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to share it with you uh, tonight. Mark chapter 1, verses 40 through 45. Very short, simple little text. Hear God's word. And the leper came to Jesus, begging him, and kneeling before him, said to him, If you're willing, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go. Show yourself to the priests and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded, for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news, so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places. And people were coming to him from every quarter. Here ends the reading of God's word. Let's, let's pray before we look a little more closely at it. Father, I thank you for each of these men who are here who've made time out of really busy schedules to, to spend time together, to spend time looking into your word, just to get away. And I do pray, as has already been asked, that you would be a very special presence in our midst and that you would bless this time to each one of them. And now, as part of that, we're asking that you, Lord, through this text, given to us so many years ago, would speak to us very personally and powerfully, that you would speak to us through it. For when you speak, Lord, amazing things happen. 
When you speak, worlds come into existence. When you speak, people are raised from the dead. When you speak, souls are saved and transformed. So speak to us tonight. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. This really is such a short, simple little text. And it's one that you could just kind of easily read over, um, you know, when you're reading through the scriptures, because it's the kind of thing you see Jesus doing a lot of. Uh, It's not all that terribly unusual in this regard. So um, if you can call any miracle of Jesus ordinary, this is an ordinary text uh, that way. Uh, It's easy to say, okay, yeah, miracle, you know, cool. Um, What else have you got? Kind of thing. But I think this little text, at the same time, is also a very important incident in the earthly earthly ministry of Jesus that I think really communicates who he is and why he came. It really communicates the hope of the gospel and its transforming power. It really does communicate why our respective churches exist in our given communities. I think it ultimately exists uh, to show us what our calling is as Christians. Now, that's a lot to ask of a little package uh, like this, little little uh, passage. But we are told that good things come in small packages, so let's take a look at it uh, a little more closely and see if it can deliver on such promise. It's really built around two key elements or figures. Uh, here, one is the leper and his leprosy, and the other, uh, of course, is, is Jesus uh, himself. Now, let's look at the leper here, because here's a guy who's coming to Jesus with a real significant problem. I don't understand all the medical ins and outs of leprosy, but it was one of the most feared and devastating diseases that has ever afflicted mankind, especially in the ancient world. People used to think it was contagious, and that's why they would keep you, you know, keep you at, uh, away from them. And they'd have things like leper colonies and whatever. And anybody who uh, was even suspected of having leprosy was essentially alienated from his family and from his community. And if he was still allowed to circulate in, community, in the community, he'd have to walk around crying out, unclean, unclean, um, so that nobody would accidentally bump into him or catch this disease or whatever. And it was a disease that really did have uh, devastating physical uh, effects uh, on a person. Uh, a lot of it had to do with the fact that apparently your nerve endings die and you can't feel anything uh, anymore. And so it's not only something that is corrosive to the body and you end up losing limbs and a lot of open sores and they get infected and that gets worse and a lot of other terrible things that do, do happen to you. Uh, that way, but it's also a self-destructive disease because when you lose uh, sense of feeling or with that pain, you don't know when you're hurting yourself anymore. Uh, I mean, you could put your hand on the fire or something hot and burn it and not know that that's what you're, you're doing. Any number of different things you can do to hurt yourself this way. And as a result, like I said, it was so devastating, so horrible that people would either have to be uh, walking around declaring themselves unclean or if it got to a certain level you would be just shuttled off to a, a leper colony, which might be the equivalent of a, of a quarry that could be easily contained and guarded. And into that uh, colony, that quarry, that you would be sent to, to live out your days because there would be no real healing that would take place uh, as a result of it. And there you would live a wretched existence. Uh, there of not only utter loneliness, separated from everything and everybody you ever cared about uh, there, but an absolute squalor. No way to take baths or anything like that. Uh, 
food and water at an absolute minimum. As a matter of fact, the only way you really survived as a leper is if uh, family took mercy on you and they brought food to you and left it at the edge of the, the leper colony. And then you, if you could fight off the other lepers, then you could have uh, some food. But eventually your family would really take pity on you and they would decide, let's not give them any food at all. Let's let the poor guy die, you know, kind of thing. And so it really was uh, such a, a wretched thing that in the Jewish mindset, and I think this is reflected in the biblical text as well, uh, that it became representative of man's overall fallen condition before God. It represented the devastating effects of man's rebellion against God, our disobedience, and our sinfulness because of the, of, of the corrosive, devastating effects and because it was self-destructive as well. That sin often represents people doing things, uh, not even realizing what the consequences of those uh, are going to be. It represents the alienation from God and anybody else that you, you care for. Uh, they're just being cut off from, from God and society. Basically what it means to be clean or unclean here. See, to be unclean is just anything or anyone who is unacceptable to God. Anything or anyone who is unacceptable to God because of their condition. It could be a material thing or whatever it might be, and that's what was unclean. And that's what the guy is asking for here, you'll notice. He doesn't come up to Jesus begging to be healed, per se. He actually comes up to Jesus asking to be made clean. Because what he is asking for is not just physical healing. He's asking for full-scale restoration. He wants to be restored back to his relationship with God, to his family, to the community. He wants healing physically, socially, spiritually. The entire package is what he is looking for here. And so he comes to Jesus asking to be made clean. And that's what Jesus pursues with him. And that's what we now find turns the page with this man's wretched condition and everything that it represents to to us now, biblically and symbolically, Jesus comes onto the scene. Now, he could have simply pronounced this man healed. I mean, he'd done so, that sort of thing before, or would do this thing later. I mean, he would see guys and they would say, please come home and heal my, my daughter, she's dying and this sort of thing. And then Jesus would start home with them. Then they'd say, we know that you're a man of authority and power. You don't need to do that. So Jesus would heal from a distance. And they'd go home and find the daughter healed and things of, things of that nature. So Jesus could heal at great distances as well. But more often than not, including this text, we find that the Bible goes out of its way to mention that Jesus touched this guy sort of an eyewitness type of uh, an account, something that other people were really noticing here. I mean, think about it. Here is this wretched guy, a man filthy, diseased, probably deformed, open sores, festering wounds, missing body parts possibly, any number of different things. Who knows when this guy has bathed last? I mean, he's not the kind of guy that you'd give up and give a hug. You know, or, or, or even touch with a 10-foot pole. And yet here Jesus goes up to this guy and does something absolutely unheard of, unthinkable. He puts his hand or hands on him. He reaches out and touches him. A touch of love and grace that fully restored him in every sense of the term. 
He touched a man where he was both lonely and grotesque. He touched a man where he really hurt. He touched a man where he was ugly and broken. And at that moment, even years ago, it hit me. This is why Jesus came. This is what it's all about. This is what Christianity is all about. This is why we have the incarnation. That ultimately, yes, Jesus became man to die on the cross, take the penalty for our sins. But in a certain sense, this is where the incarnation is also completed. That we don't just worship a God who's up in heaven, somehow aloof and all-knowing and all-powerful and this sort of thing, who looks down on our misery and just declares whatever he's going to declare. This is a God who's entered into our world, into our life experience, who has come to look us eyeball to eyeball, who's come to touch us where we're hurting and broken and ugly and diseased and all those other sorts of things. And at this moment, this tangible touch takes on just gigantic cosmic significance. This is the kind of God we have. Not some aloof and unknowable spiritual entity. And it is so interesting to me that as you go through the scriptures, how often you see this word touched. Even in Isaiah in chapter 6, those of you who are familiar with that tap passage, the, Isaiah gets this great view of the image of, of the glory of God. The angel takes the tongs from the coals at the altar. He takes and he touches his lips so that his guilt is taken away, his sin is toned for. We see that later on when Jesus approaches a, a city called Nain and they're bringing a, there's a funeral procession coming out with a dead body on a bier. Jesus does the unthinkable. He, he walks right into the midst of this funeral procession. That's something most of us are going to get away with. Walks right up to the, to, the, to, the, to the bier here with a dead body draped over as they're taking it to the burial place. And at this point, the whole procession comes to a halt. Everybody's shocked out of their gourd. Who does he think he is? What's he going to do? All this kind of stuff. And Jesus says, don't cry. He's only asleep. Like, what? Don't cry? Are you, are you kidding me? Here? He says, and then he says, get up. He gets up, restores him, gives him back to his mother. This sort of thing. But what he did to do that, it says, he put his hands on him. He touched him. This dead body, the most unclean thing there was in Jewish culture. This is the kind of thing we see Jesus doing over and over again. And this is why these things are called, rarely are they ever called miracles. They're actually called signs. Because they're not just these arbitrary displays of power. Yeah, look how great Jesus is. But they are designed to point us to something beyond themselves. The point is to who Jesus is, why he came, and we how and why we can find hope and healing for all the mess that's in our own lives. And let me put this in a bigger picture uh, here. Let's, let's back up here and try to put it in a little bit more cosmic perspective rather than just this minuscule incident. And I'm going to ask you to do a little bit of uh, mental imagination just to kind of get a picture in your head. Let's, let's try to get like a target, these concentric circles in your head. And we've got, and, and these circles kind of represent what we're going to call the circles of life. So if you're a Lion King fan, okay, this means something to you. Otherwise, just, you know, go with it here. So we've got the, in the first circle here, you've got, let's just say, God. And at the core of our very being is, is we were created to have a relationship with him. And we're spiritual beings created to have this relationship with God. 
And then at the next circle, there's the self. It's all of us as, as individuals created in the image of God. And then in the next circle, outside of that, you've got society, which is the intersection of all these selves who are going around, all these different images of God uh, going around in life. And then outside of that, the fourth circle, you've got creation or nature, the very environment in which we live and exist as selves and interact with one another in society. So you've got God at the center of it all, individual selves, society, and creation. And we're told in in Genesis chapter 1 that God created all of this, and he created all of it good. And he created it all to exist in harmony together. Everything intersecting with one another perfectly. Playing off each other well. Serving each other well. It's what the the scriptures would call and the Jews now call shalom. Everything was created very good. Sort of like Louis Armstrong, what a beautiful world. (laughs) But then in the midst of all that beauty and order and perfection... Then came sin. Then came our rebellion. Then came the fall. And with it, the devastating effects of sin in every area. And sin, as represented in the scriptures, was basically the same thing that I was doing, that most all of us are doing, which is this whole idea of pursuing autonomy. Autonomy apart from God. It's basically the attitude that says, nobody, nobody, is going to tell me how to run my life. Not even God himself is going to tell me I will be the captain of my own ship. I will chart my own destiny. I will determine what is right and wrong, good and evil. I'll come up with my own definitions, thank you very much, and I will live my own life. That's what Adam and Eve did, and from that point on, there was literally a fracture in the universe. And immediately we began to experience the consequences of those actions. And the first thing we see happen, right at the very core of our being, is a fundamental rupture in our relationship with God. And we see that there is alienation between God and man. And that's one of the first things that happens with Adam and Eve. They run and they hide from God because of their own sense of guilt, their own sense of shame. They hide from God. They knew that they were naked. They were driven from the garden. And since then, we have not been able to experience or to enjoy God's presence in our lives, his peace, his love, his life, his pulsating joy. And we have found ourselves under judgment, the judgment of death, eternal separation from God. And so now that's been the reality of our our world, under judgment from God, separated from God, this fundamental rupture at the very core of our being and of the cosmos itself. And from that, it's been like like this giant tsunami effect that just kind of starts rippling out. The fundamental earthquake, that's the epicenter. But then the ripple effect that has just gone right on out uh, to all those, those ends of the circle. And so we see that there's not only this rupture in our relationship with God, but a rupture in our relationship with ourselves. What do I mean by that? Well, now we experience and deal with things like guilt, true and false guilt. We deal with shame and fear and worry and lust and insecurity. We struggle with our sense of identity and purpose in life. We struggle with low self-esteem and just on and on like that. And so if there was no other problem, with a fallen world and just this fundamental rupture with ourselves, 
that would be enough to make us miserable because the bottom line, most of us don't live very well with ourselves. Most of us don't even like ourselves very much. And I see this all the time in people. I see it in just simple things, like a guy's especially. When we do something really stupid or embarrassing or dumb uh, or whatever like that, we tend to beat ourselves up really quickly. Like, what a jerk. What were you thinking? What sort of idiot says something like that or does something like that or whatever? And we just have a hard time even getting over it, you know, kind of thing. Or I look at people, you know, they don't, they don't like their appearances. I don't like my hair. I don't like the fact I don't have any hair. I don't like the fact that it's gray now. I don't like the fact that I can't part it where I want to. I don't like my ears. They're not the same shape. They're not in the same place on the side of my head. I don't like my nose. I don't like my face. I don't like the fact I'm fact that I'm short or tall or thin or whatever. I'm going to become blonde now instead of brunette. I'm going to do, I mean, whatever. We just don't seem to like any of that. I mean, for example, how many of you like to watch yourself on a video? Very few people do, and if you do, that's probably another issue uh, to discuss. Uh, But the fact of the matter is most of us don't like to listen to ourselves on a tape or a a recording of some sort or watch ourselves on a video. We just kind of cringe that we see whatever faults we think that we have, whatever it is that we're unhappy about ourselves. We all seem, no matter who we are, we seem not to like whatever it is about us that we have. And I have to do that every now and then for sermons that I preach. And this sort of thing, and I have to look at the thing or review the, listen to it or whatever, and that's horrible. I just hate doing that. I listen to it, watch it, say, term and tape, and I'm looking, thinking, geez, what a, what a dork. You know, I mean, why does anybody listen to you? You, you stumble over words, you don't always make sense, you're all nasally, you just, I just don't get it, you know, uh, kind of thing. It's just whatever it is, this is just the little things that just reflect, and it, it can take on much more serious self-destructive behaviors all along the path. But not only is it this breakdown at the self level, but then you got society as well. Because now you got all these neurotic, dysfunctional, messed up selves running around trying to intersect and relate to one another, and that's creating disasters as well. Because now they're not getting along with you. We see, find that in the Garden of, Eden, uh, Garden of Eden as well. Not only are they struggling with their own guilt and shame that alienates them from God, but what it does with each other. Adam and Eve hide from each other. They start blaming each other. Adam, you know, asked to give an account for what's going on. He says, well, you know, it was the woman. That's right. It was, it was the woman you gave me. That's right. What have I got to do with this sort of thing? It was the woman you created, gave me, that's the problem, end of the case. You know, kind of thing. I mean, right off the bat, deflecting the blame, putting it off on the woman, then conveniently God, and this sort of thing. Nothing to do with him. This blame shifting, uh, all this not getting along with each other. And so Adam and Eve don't get along with each other. Their kids don't get along with each other. One kid kills another kid. Then you finally get to Noah and the flood. It's a real mess by then. And that's pretty much been the trajectory of the human race ever since. Wars, racism, selfishness, hatred, anger, abuse, violence. Neighbors not getting along with neighbors. Races not getting along with other races. Nations not getting along with other nations. We don't get along in our marriages very well. We don't get along in our churches very well. These are the realities that we now have to live with. And not only that, it gets worse. Because now the very environment in which we exist and function has 
seen the effects of sin and the curse of God. And now there are things like diseases and natural disasters and deformities and, and hard work and childbirth and all those other sorts of things. Every hurricane, every tornado that hits a trailer park, every earthquake or flood, every sickness, every time your kid gets chicken pox or a, or a cold, it's this built-in reminder that things are not the way they're supposed to be. The things are fundamentally broken, and that we are living in a world that is not according to its original design. All of this is a cosmic picture of man with his leprosy, man in his fallenness. Things are under judgment, and things are broken. And yes, there's still a lot of beauty in this world because God made it. That's why we got places like Green Lake out here and all. And still, we're capable of amazing things uh, as human beings because we reflect the image of God. We are created with amazing capacities. So it doesn't mean that even as non-Christians we can't do incredible things, but there is a fundamental breakdown at the core of our universe and the core of each one of our lives. It's broken. It's under judgment. But enter Jesus. And Jesus has come to bring healing and hope, restoration and brokenness, and hold us to our brokenness in every area. He's come to bring salvation in the fullest sense of the term. He has come to make us clean. And he starts off doing that, actually, by coming, taking on human form, and dying on the cross for our sins, taking upon himself the judgment that you and I deserve. The bullet that is intended for us, he now steps in front of and takes it himself. And all of our consequences of our sin, our brokenness, our rebellion, our ignorance, whatever it might be, he now suffers upon himself to bring about restoration in this fundamental relationship with God himself at the very core of our being, at the very core of the universe. And that's where it has to start. And from there, once we begin to experience healing and wholeness and restoration in our relationship with God, then we be, if you, there's, a result, there's a reverse tsunami effect. Now we can begin to get, experience some wholeness in our own lives. Now we begin to know who we are, why we're here, why we exist. We're, we're back in relationship with the God who created us, intended us for himself. There's now purpose and direction, peace and joy and wholeness in our lives. There's now, we're now in a capacity to start loving others well because we're not such needy, desperate creatures ourselves looking to wives and children and jobs and everything else to meet these gaping holes of need in our own lives. And now we're in a position of loving other people well. And so now there starts to be healing and wholeness and quality in relationships. And even we begin to see it in creation itself where our whole fundamental relationship to nature changes. Because we see it not just as Mother Earth. We see it as created by God and given to us to be stewards of it, to use it and to care for it for his glory. And that's why I think Christians really do ultimately become the ultimate environmentalists, because we have a whole new worldview that includes nature itself. All of these reasons why Jesus came. This is what the gospel is ultimately all about, to bring forgiveness of sin, restoration with God, and to begin healing and restoration and reconciliation right across the board. This is why Jesus, when asked to summarize why he came, says in John 10.10, bottom line, 
I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. And that's what it entails. This is what this guy's asking for. Don't just heal me. Make me clean. I want the whole package. But of course, we only have it in partial now. We only get it complete in heaven, but a taste is enough to see us going. We are given a down payment, a taste of the Holy Spirit now, but we will have it all at the end. And I think there's a passage in Romans that summarizes all of this so very well. In Romans 8.18, I'm just going to start there and read some of it. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits, that is the down payment of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope you were saved. This passage talks about the fact that if you're a Christian, you actually experience this phenomenon of groaning. This groaning. Why? Because you've experienced the first fruits. You've had a taste, a down payment of the way things could be, of the way things should be, of the way things will be, but the way things are not yet. And so in this world, there is a deep groaning uh, for us as we yearn for that time, but continue to live out well in this life. It's sort of like, the best thing I can compare it to is like when I come home and I walk through the front door and I smell Ann has been cooking chocolate chip cookies. I mean, to me, there's just not a whole lot better than that. And I smell that cookies and I walk up and I see them start to be laid out, put on a platter, this sort of thing, and I'm just in ecstasy. And then I hear those horrible words. They're not for you. They're from some church function for Elizabeth's class, for whatever. They're not for me. And so it's just like, oh, the bottom falls out. You know, it's like, oh, what am I going to do? And so she has pity on me. She let me have one. A taste. And all you want is more. I groan. To the depths of my soul. I groan uh, for more. Well, that to me, whenever that does happen, that to me is a picture of this passage. That's the status in which we're in. We're in the in-between stage where Christ has come. We can have new life. We have the down payment, the first taste. We groan, but someday we will have it in full. I hope that you can see some of the applications to this. Let me point out two very quickly and we'll wrap up. First of all, I hope that you will see that this is all great personal significance to each one of you here. This is what I believe has been happening in my own life and why I share it with you. This is what Jesus wants to do in your life. He knows you're a mess. He knows you're a leper. He knows you're unclean. He knows all the skeletons that are in your closet. 
He knows your sins and your struggles, the situations you're dealing with. He knows where you're hurting and you're broken. He knows where your real needs and issues are. He knows where you're struggling with unbelief and doubt. He knows you're unclean and diseased, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. And what is his response to you when he sees you in your mess? Well, the one thing you don't see here, and that's the other thing that stood out to me, he never takes a posture of condemnation or of denunciation or moral indignation. He doesn't sit back and look at us and say, well, look at you. You're only getting what you deserve. You made a bunch of bad decisions. You just live with it. You're only paying the price for all your foolish behavior. You never see him do anything like that to messed up, broken people. Instead, you hear him saying things like, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Instead of something like, oh, yuck, you're disgusting. Go get yourself cleaned up a little bit. Come on back and we'll talk. You don't see anything like that. Right in the midst of your mess, he comes and he touches. And he brings healing. He brings hope. He brings new life. All we have to do is have the honesty and the humility that the leper does. To take the same posture that the leper does in coming to Jesus and saying, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And I know what Jesus' response will be to that cry. Oh, I I am very much willing. Be clean. Because I paid the price for that. I took your uncleanness upon me. I died for that. So, oh yeah, come. Let me touch you. Are you willing to let Jesus come and touch you where you're broken and ugly and diseased and hurting and rebellious and unbelieving? Are you willing to fall? And look, if the leper doesn't come up to Jesus and say, I used to be this great guy. I used to do all the right things. Man, I was at synagogue just about every Saturday. And I really gave, you know, most of my, my money away. I really did help my wife wash the, the pottery and, you know, I helped this little old lady cross the street most of the time. And none of this kind of junk. He comes with this complete sense of helplessness. I got no, no, nothing here. I got nothing to lay at your feet except my mess. That's all I got. Are you willing to take that posture of honesty and humility at the foot of the cross? That's what the gospel is all about. And that's where its transforming power is experienced. But I also hope that you'll see the last thing that's a part of this. That those who have experienced in reality such grace, and as we continue to do so right through our Christian lives, it becomes irrepressible to tell other people about it. We just can't not do so. And yeah, it gets irritating and it gets scary and it gets all those other things, but it's just like this leper here. And Jesus told him, can we keep a lid on it? I mean, I don't want people just kind of going off on this miracle worker thing. It gets really distracting to what I'm all about here, this sort of stuff. But of course he doesn't. He can't. It's irrepressible. And that's the other thing we see all the time throughout the New Testament is people just cannot but go tell the people what Jesus has done for them. From this point on, we are having been recipients of his grace. 
We become instruments of his grace to a lost and broken world. We become those who do the, the touching. We're the body of Christ. We're his presence in this world. This is what we are called to do. We are ambassadors of his love, heralds of his truth, ministers of his mercy. This is now your calling, identity, and purpose. Having been touched, to touch. And I hope that in your churches and in your life, you will never settle for anything less than that kind of passion and enthusiasm and witness to the grace of God. This is a simple story. The story of a single man, a leper, who is a living picture of what our condition is and why Jesus came. Jesus has come to touch our lives, to forgive, to heal, and transform. And then from there, to make us instruments of that same healing grace. I'd like to encourage you to take just a few moments to focus on this, to take a moment to say, how does this apply to me? What is Jesus saying to me tonight? And are you willing to be as transparent before him, to kneel before him in your hearts, and ask him to come into your life in the same way, to touch your life the way he touched the leper. Take a few moments, if you would, to reflect on these things, respond to God in prayer, and I'll close this in just a few seconds. Pray that, Lord, where each one of us is at, that you would please speak to us. Maybe in the very deep and secret chambers of our soul, where we don't let anybody go. We don't tend to want to go there ourselves. Pray that, Lord, that you would speak to us very personally and powerfully from your word and call us to yourself that we might experience your cleansing. Let me pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.